Job chapter 32, and you know that, that what we've been doing for really the middle portion of the book of Job is I've been, I've been just summarizing each of the, the, the people's arguments. We summarized the first three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, then we summarized sort of Job's whole response to them, and now we come to the last of Job's friends. This is Elihu, and uh, he is the youngest of all of Job's Friends And actually, up until this point, Elihu has been completely silent in the conversation. We didn't even know that Elihu existed until chapter 32. Uh, this might surprise us a little bit, but in ancient times, and really in most cultures throughout history, the, the youngest person in the conversation basically said nothing. They had no standing to say anything. The idea is that with age also comes wisdom, and so we defer to those who are older. Uh, that is an assumption um, many times it's true, but not all the time uh, does age uh, bring with it wisdom. Um, and so we see that here in the book of book of Job. I'm going to be real honest with you. Elihu is a tough nut to crack. He is kind of a weird guy in a lot of ways. When I first uh, started, started reading through Job and um, listening to what Elihu had to say, I thought, man, you know, this guy, he's like the, the, the young, you know, theological wunderkind. Like, he knows everything, he's smart, he knows how to rebuke the older people, he knows how to rebuke Job, he speaks uh, the things of God, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but the more I, I look at Elihu, the more I'm like, I, I think he's just an angry young punk who um, says a lot of the same things, actually, that the other friends say, maybe not as harshly, maybe not as uh, radically, um, but, uh, but I, I think there's some, he's a mixed bag is really the deal. I don't think we can just put our, our finger on him. Um, part of the reason that I thought, well, he's a good guy is because at the end of the book, when God rebukes Job's friends, he rebukes the first three, but he does not rebuke Elihu. But he doesn't commend him either. In fact, it's kind of weird. Everybody just sort of ignores Elihu at the end of the book. Job doesn't respond to him. The three friends don't respond to him. God doesn't mention him. And once he's done talking... We actually have nothing else to go on. And so um, the best we can do is sort of put uh, some things together. There are some people actually who say because there's no response by anybody that maybe Elihu's portion was a late addition, that the book of Job was completed and that somebody later inserted Elihu at the end. I, I think that's actually nonsense. I think that his portion was there um, all along. I just think uh, because he is a mixed bag um, and a lot of the arguments that have already been said, there's really no reason for the friends to respond to him. And actually what seems to happen is that the Lord just cuts him off and the Lord injects into the conversation. So um, I think what we're going to see here is this is an angry and a very proud young man who is very frustrated with the older generation. He's frustrated with Job. He's frustrated with the three friends. They haven't been able to refute him in any way. He thinks he can refute Job better than they can. He thinks he's got better theology. He thinks he's got better arguments. He thinks that he can understand God's side better. He says he even speaks for God. We'll see that in just a little bit. Um, and what we're going to see is that, that he's, not, he, he's not great. He's not necessarily as bad as the other friends. And there are even times we'll see toward the end where I think actually um, he, he, he does have some good perspective. He does give us some good things to maybe consider. Interestingly, his, his monologue, because it's not a dialogue, there's no back and forth, it's just him 
spouting off is the longest of any of the characters in the book of Job. His is the longest. It's, it runs six chapters of this kind of varied uh, monologue of, of good and bad and angry, something like that. Um, and if there's a big takeaway from all of this, um, I think that is, if you are young, and by young, I mean teenager or 20-something or 30-something, maybe even to middle age, because biblically speaking, that's young. Anything under about 50 is young, biblically speaking. We need to have, a, we need to be very careful to just have a dismissive attitude toward those who are older than us. We need to be very careful about that. We want to respect them. We might want to correct them or encourage them, but we need to be very careful thinking, oh, well, I've got all the answers. I can respond. I know everything there is to know at 17. You be very careful. Or 37 or 47. That is often the attitude that the younger generation has, is that just because it's older, it can't be good. They haven't heard what I have to say. Well... There might be something to be said for a fresh look at problems and fresh look at things, but the reality is we need to defer to those who are who are older. Um, one of the things that we see that the first three friends dealt with in their arguments against Job, the reason that they failed was not because their arguments were bad. They were bad. But it's actually because Job was innocent. Their premise was all wrong. That was the problem. It wasn't like, hey, if they just had a better argument, no, really, if they were just resting on truth, then they would have maybe had a different outcome in life. And so what I want to do with Elihu, as I've done with the other friends, is just sort of sketch the overall uh, the overall speech that he's had. Uh, we are going to be mostly warned about what not to do. But again, I think at the end, there are a couple of things that we see that Elihu does well that maybe we would do well to take note of as well. The the first problem with Elihu uh, that we're going to see very early on is that he speaks out of anger. That's really that's really the biggest issue, and this is the thing that that infiltrates into his entire speech is that he speaks out of anger. So the, I I don't know who made up this number, but they say that eighty percent of all communication is body language, right? Well, in a book that is completely dialogue, we have very little body language. And so we've had to, with the other friends, we've had to kind of go on cues and verbal stuff. Well, actually here, the Bible tells us exactly what Elihu's attitude was. So take a look at these first five verses here. So these three men, Zophar, Bildad, uh, Eliphaz, these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So this is sort of the biographical introduction we have to Elihu. Four times in five verses, it mentions that he burned with anger. This is the thing that taints all of his speech, is he is angry at 
the the friend's lack of ability to respond to Job. He's angry at Job because Job seems to be justifying himself wrongly in Elihu's opinion. And they're not getting anywhere. This, uh, just like the other friends, uh, we don't know much about Elihu. We don't know exactly who his family is. We can surmise that maybe he came from east of the Jordan River, that, that he's, he's kind of part of that whole area where, where Job is, is from, maybe modern day Iraq or Syria, somewhere in there. Um, but what we do find out about him is that everything that he says is an outpouring of his anger. It is, it is the expression of his wrath because he's not really getting what he wants. And by the way, this is not just like mildly annoyed. This isn't just perturbed a little bit by, by what the friends are not able to do. Uh, the language here is, is this smoldering hotness, this burning, this, this great indignation. In fact, it's the same phrase used by God over in chapter 42 of the three friends when God says, I am angry at you because you are in the wrong. And it says God was burning with anger toward those three friends. Is there anything there's that we don't want from God? It's that he's burning in anger toward us. He's burning in anger toward the three friends. And this is exactly what Elihu is doing as well towards the three friends and towards Job. It's important to understand that he is angry through this because this is going to help us understand maybe some parts where where it sounds like he's being okay. But really, if you overlay that with the idea that he is actually upset, I think it lends to a more consistent view of, of who he is. Um, again, he also does not get rebuked uh, by God later on in the book, but he doesn't actually get commended by God in the book either. So, so there is this anger. Some of it may be righteous. Some of it not so much. But at the end of the day, he's mad because he's not getting what he wants. And what we see here is that what he really wants is he wants Job to justify God. He wants Job to admit that he was wrong in some way. So what, what Elihu's doing, he's been quiet this whole time, but he thinks he knows what actually is going on in Job's life. He thinks he knows what's actually in Job's heart, and that's why he's mad that Job doesn't confess it. Otherwise, he'd be like, well, let's hear what Job has to say, and maybe we'll weigh it. No, the outcome that he wants is for Job to confess this sin that he has done, which, of course, he hasn't done. We know that from the first couple of chapters. So he's angry at Job. He's angry at the friends. Look at verse 3. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. He's saying, can't you guys do anything right? Can't you argue? Can't you make a case? You've got it right here. The three of you, you're older. You know what's going on. He thinks only if they had been quicker on their feet or been able to argue the case better, then Job would have been caught up in his words and, and Job would have repented. If only you guys would have done this a little bit better. And then at the end, verse 5, really the reason he's angry is they gave up. Are you guys going to stop talking? You just have no more arguments to give anymore? I can't believe you would give up at this point. You've been with Job so long and you haven't made a good argument, but you're not making any arguments now. And so he just kind of gets up. He just doesn't know what to do. And so he responds in anger. Maybe they have nothing more to say because Job isn't going to change his mind because Job is not wrong. Because Job did nothing wrong. It was Job's righteousness that actually caused this trial to come in. It wasn't his sinfulness. And yet it seems like he just has to say something. 
He can't not speak out of anger. James 1.20 says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we speak out of anger, very little righteousness is ever produced. Is there a, a spot for righteous anger? Yes. The problem with us, though, is that we very rarely can contain ourselves. Right? It's like if you have a cup of coffee that's like filled to the brim and you try walking across the room, can you walk across the room without it spilling over? Theoretically, do you walk across the room without it spilling over? No. That's how it is with anger. Just anger all on its own is not wrong. It's not sinful. But how we express that anger is often sinful. Which is why Solomon said in Proverbs 27, wrath is cruel Anger is overwhelming. And who can stand against jealousy? This is how anger is. It's overwhelming. It it taints everything. It's hard for us to actually even have logical conclusions, logical dialogue when we're angry because it's the anger that's sort of taken control. And we let it take control. So he is angry. He's an angry young man. Man, excuse me. The second thing that we see with Elihu is that Elihu is very arrogant, actually. Lots of pride going on with Elihu. I'm going to read the rest of this chapter here in just a moment. But basically what Elihu is going to say is the same thing that Zophar said back in chapter 11, which is, I can't not speak. I've got to talk. I've got to get my opinion out there. I've got to say something. So newsflash for you. When that thought comes across your mind where it's like, i got to speak. I can't not speak. You know what you should probably not do? Probably not speak. Usually bad things flow from that kind of a heart. Because it's a heart of arrogance. It's a heart of thinking that it's all up to me. It's all on my shoulders to respond. And to make this right. And so what Elihu's going to do through the rest of this chapter is he's going to talk about how he waited as long as he could. He listened to the old guys. He thought they had wisdom. They don't have wisdom. And so now he's going to speak. He can't not speak. He's like bursting forth and he wants to speak. So let's let's take a look. Verses 6, and we're going to read through the, the end of chapter 32. So so stay with me. Try and, try and follow what he's saying. So it says, And Elihu, verse 6, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So all of your years of of wisdom, yeah, they're worth nothing. Now it's my turn, guys. I want to speak. Verse 11, behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. I'm not going to say what you said. They are dismayed, and they answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait because they do not speak? Because they stand there and they answer no more? I also will answer with my share. I will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. My spirit within me constrains me. 
Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. Sorry, old guys, you don't know what you're talking about. So now it's my turn. I can't not speak. I'm like wineskins. Wineskins, they need a little vent so that the air could kind of vent out. And he's like, I'm ready to burst open. That, that's what the words are within me. I have to speak. Now, now here's the thing. Up through verse 22, I don't know if you noticed this, but Elihu has actually not offered any arguments to Job. He's actually not addressed the situation at all. What he's addressed is just these other guys. He hasn't actually brought in any new positive argument, any new information. What's what's even more interesting is he doesn't bring any new information or any argument here in chapter 32. And he's actually not going to do it in chapter 33 either. Chapter 32 and 33 are all just introduction for Elihu. They're all just how much greater I am at oratory than these old guys. How much more wisdom I have and how I must burst forth and speak because you old guys, you haven't done anything. There's actually no argument really advanced in his first two chapters. 49 verses of dialogue or monologue, really. And he offers nothing except an introduction to how great he is. This is Elihu's arrogance coming in. He thinks he knows. He thinks he knows better than all of the old guys. You might be reminded of Proverbs ten nineteen that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. That's like the definition of Elihu. He's just got all these words. He's like a politician. Like, I'm going to say something really good. You guys got away from it. It's going to be good. You guys, you didn't say anything good. You said everything bad. I'm going to say something miraculous. It's going to be awesome because I speak for God. You don't speak for God. You're old. I'm young. You're dumb. I'm wise. And he just goes on like that for 49 verses. And we still have no idea what he's going to say. Nothing at all. And I'll, I'll be honest, as someone who basically talks for a living... This is something I have to be careful with. Just injecting myself, throwing out my opinion, whether or not I have a well-developed opinion or not. I think maybe all of us need to be careful, just wanting to inject, wanting to contribute when we might not know. Jesus says in Matthew 12, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That word careless is kind of interesting. It's almost like unemployed. It's like, here's a word, but it's not really doing anything. Like, it's not, it's not accomplishing anything. Like, that's the idea. It's, it's inert. It's idle. It's, it's not designed to, to actually accomplish anything. But it's those words that we are going to give an account for on the day of judgment, Jesus says. Every word that we speak. I think it's common for most of us to want to fill dead space, right? We got, we got to say something. We got to contribute. We got to, no, we don't actually. A lot of times the best thing that we can do is stay silent. Ask questions. Now, Elihu is going to say some things in chapter 33, but again, he doesn't address specifically the issue of Job, and he doesn't address the issues that Job has brought up. He sounds like he has wisdom, but I, I just I want you to listen to Elihu, what he's about to say, and I just want you to imagine that your good friend is telling these things to you in the middle of tragedy. 
And when we read it like that, I think we start to kind of get an idea of exactly where Elihu is coming from. And we get an idea that, yeah, he's not so great after all. So take a look. Chapter 33, verses 1 through 11. He says, But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and he watches all my paths. Elihu's quoting Job there. And then, and then he goes on. But basically what he's saying is, see, I'm upright. I'm wise. I speak for God. I was made from God. I was pinched off of the same clay that you were, Job. You think you're wise? You were pinched off of that clay? I'm wise too. I was pinched off of that clay. He thinks he speaks for God. In fact, he says as much. Look over at chapter 36 real quick. This is where it's very blatant. And Elihu continued and he said, bear with me a little. Sorry, chapter 36, verse one. And Elihu continued and said, bear with me a little and I will show you. For I have yet something to say on God's behalf. Again, he's God's spokesman. I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Well, who do you think is perfect in knowledge in Elihu's mind? Yeah, him. He thinks he, I mean, can you imagine your friend saying that? Well, let me give you some advice here because I am perfect in knowledge. There is one here who is perfect in knowledge. It's not you. It's me. Can you imagine that? When we think of it, if someone were giving us counsel and advice, we're like, that's pretty out there. That's pretty right. This is Elihu. This is what he's saying. He thinks he's pure. Elihu goes on. Look back at chapter 33. Remember, one of Job's complaints is that God doesn't answer him. He wants an audience with God. He wants to question God, wants to talk to God. Admittedly, Job is out of line in some of his statements. But his but Elihu's response is actually, God has answered you, buddy. And he does it in two ways. He says, first of all, God answers people through nightmares. That's one way God answers. Yeah. And the second is that God makes people sick. That's your answer. This is, this is exactly what he says. So take a look at verses 12 through 18. Elihu says, behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you for God is greater than a man. Why do you contend against him saying he will answer none of man's words? Verse 14, for God speaks in one way and in two, though a man does not perceive it in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. 
that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Did you get that? Elijah says, actually, one of the ways that God answers is through night terrors, nightmares, through deep dreams in the middle of the night. And to some extent, it's kind of interesting. I was, I was looking this up, um, just sort of throughout the whole Bible. To some extent, God, God can use dreams to answer people and to give information. Seems like that's on the table, but it's not common. It's actually very rare that he would ever do that. Um, and I think it's it's a little bit unusual that Elihu says, hey, look, you want an answer from God? Just wait for your nightmares. That's your answer from God. You just need a night terror, and that's God's answer to you. And again, here's the interesting thing. Sometimes God uses night terrors to answer people. So you remember Abraham and Sarai? Or I guess it was Abram and Sarai. When they go and they visit Abimelech, and, uh, and Abram's like... Uh, Honey, tell him you're my sister because otherwise he'll slaughter me and take you. And she's like, okay, because I guess technically it's sort of true. They're half brother, sister. Anyway, how does Abimelech know that this is Abram's wife? It's through God coming at Abimelech in a dream saying, you are a dead man. Like that's the dream he has. That's a night terror. If ever there was a night terror, it's God coming to you and saying, I am going to slaughter you. Like, that's a night terror. So sometimes he does use this, but to say that this is normative, that this is how God answers, is definitely a bridge too far. Look at verse 19. This is, this is the other part. This is sort of the sickness sort of side of it. Man, so that was the first side, the nightmares, night terrors. Number two, verse 19, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. So that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen. And his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores his man. Uh, he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what it was right. And it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit in my life shall look upon the light. He says, look, sometimes God answers through sickness. He'll just he'll just waste someone away. Now, think about this. Who's he staring at when he says this? He's staring at Job, who's covered from head to toe in boils that he has scraped off. Right. So very subtle here. But I wonder who might he be talking to? I think he's talking to Job. Hey, Job, God has answered you, actually. Look in the mirror. And you can see there's God's response to all of your inquiries. Maybe you ought to take note. That's exactly what he's saying. It's a lot more subtle than the other guys. The other guy, other guys just lay it out there and lambaste Job. Elihu is a lot more subtle. Now, again, just like the dreams, does God sometimes use physical affliction to get our attention? Absolutely. Is that normative? 
Probably not. If you're sick and if you're afflicted with something, should you maybe check your heart and see if there are things going on? Sure, not a bad idea. But I don't think that we can just specifically correlate, hey, we're sick with, hey, I did something wrong. We know that that's not the case. That's certainly not the case with Job. In fact, the reason Job is sick, again, is because he did everything right. He's God's example of faithfulness in the midst of a trial. Look at verse 29 here to finish up the chapter. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent and I will teach you wisdom. Again, that's pretty harsh. If that were our friend saying that. And again, his thing is, if you repent, God will restore your life and righteousness to you. So, um, yeah, Elihu, he is, he is angry um, and he is arrogant. The third thing is that actually when we look at Elihu and we kind of drill down on what he says, he ends up just repackaging all of the arguments from the other guys. He says he's going to argue in a better way. He says he's going to refute Job and stop his mouth. But actually at the end of the day, he says kind of all the same stuff. Because there's really nothing else to say. These are all the same arguments. So we've seen the retribution principle before, and we're going to see it here again. I'm just going to read the first 15 verses of chapter 34. And I want you to notice this back and forth with the retribution principle. Remember, the retribution principle is that God always and quickly punishes wickedness, and he always and quickly rewards righteousness. Does it happen sometimes? Yes. Does it happen all the time? No. So we have to have qualifications. So take a look. Chapter 34, verses 1 through 15. Elihu answered, and he said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. He's saying that was, that's what Job is saying. So then he responds, verse 7, What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, and who walks with wicked men? For he has said, It profits man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. There it is. That's the retribution principle of a truth. God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world. If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his and his breath all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. So what he does is he paraphrases Job's arguments saying, Job is saying, hey, I'm in the right, I'm in the right, I'm in the right. And that, that's, that's not a direct paraphrase, but, that, but what Elihu is doing is a close approximation. And so then he rebukes Job. He says in verse 7 that Job drinks up scoffing. Well, what does that mean? Is Job really an evildoer after all? Well, no. 
He's not an evildoer after all. But what he's saying is, Job, if that's really what you're saying, then you might as well be an evildoer. You've made company with scoffers, people who hate God. That's what he's accusing Job of. You're walking in the way of scoffers. And then he talks about that retribution principle, that God will repay those who do evil. And the implication is he'll repay them quickly and every single time. And so you're sitting here in dust and ashes, covered in scraped off boils with no more children and no more wealth because you've done something wrong. This is the retribution principle all over again. It's the same thing the other three friends spent chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters reciting. Elihu says, finally, I've got wisdom. I will teach you something new. And he says the exact same thing that they've all said for dozens of chapters. There's nothing new. There's nothing new. Maybe it's not quite as harsh as some of the other friends, but it is, in fact, the same argument. He talks about how God is wise and just and sovereign over all things. So everything that is happening is on purpose. God does have a plan, but God's purpose is to rebuke Job. That has to be what it is, according to Elihu. Now, in fairness to Elihu, as his speech wears on, he does seem to change course a little bit. He does seem to maybe shift gears. Maybe the anger subsides a little. I don't know. Um, but he does use uh, a couple of arguments that I think are actually helpful. So the first thing that he does is he refutes Job's poor logic. And I think this is actually helpful. Um, he does take some of Job's arguments, and we're going to see this here in chapter 35. He takes some of Job's arguments and he actually addresses them and he deals with them. Um, and he picks two main arguments that, that Job has made throughout the book. Uh, the first is that Job has some kind of right to an audience with God. Remember, that's been something that Job has said several times throughout the book. Like, I demand an audience with God. If I could just be in front of God and argue my case, God would acknowledge that I'm in the right and all of this would go away. I'd be justified in front of everybody. So that's the first one. Um, and so we see that. Uh, here in the first couple of verses. The, the other argument that he, that Elihu addresses is this argument that Job has subtly sort of made, which is, well, maybe living a righteous life doesn't matter after all. I mean, if this is the payment that I get for living a righteous life and I, and I get everything taken away from me, why not just go live a wicked life? I mean, if sometimes the wicked prosper, why not just do wickedness and enjoy things? And Elihu addresses both of those. So take a look, chapter 35, verses 1 through 3. And Elihu answered and he said, do you think this to be just? Do you say, and, and then he quotes Job, it is my right before God that you ask, what advantage have I? So he's have, he has this right. How am I better off than if I had sinned? So, so those are, those are the arguments. Job has rights and why am I not better off than if I had sinned? Again, those are, those are paraphrases. And those are, those are really actually arguments that, that Job has made. Why, why be righteous? Why, why do good things? If this is how God is going to treat me and, and unfold events for me, why, why does it really matter what I do? And, and you guys, I think if we're honest, we're going to ask those questions too. Those are actually pretty honest questions. Right? We see people all around us who cheat, who lie, who do things that are sinful, and they get ahead. And they don't get caught. And we're like... Actually, the only person who knows about this thing is them. Well, them and God, right? Why, why can't we take a little off the top? Why can't we just smidge 
you know, smudge the truth a little bit. We'd be so much further ahead. The answer is because we serve God. God knows. God sees. It's not the immediate consequence that we're concerned about, is it? No, it's the long-term consequence that we're concerned. When we stand before the Lord Jesus in judgment. Elihu answers these objectives, objections in reverse order. Take a look at verse 4. He says, I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him, against God? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give of him or give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness, a son of man. So he answers the second question first. And so the the answer to, well, how am I better off than if I had just sinned is a little bit unusual. It's basically this. Our sinning against God really doesn't change him in the eternal cosmic scheme of things. It doesn't get God off of course. It doesn't mess up God's plan. God's design is not thwarted because we decide to rebel against him. No, God's sovereign over even our rebellion. He uses that for his glory. And he doesn't quite get there, but the logical implication, the logical conclusion of what he's saying is the reason we obey is not to get something good out of it from God. The reason we obey is to please God, is to please our maker, the one who loved us and the one who provides for us. That's what he says. We don't, we don't sin against God to spite God to get him back. And we don't obey God just to get all the goodies. He's not Santa Claus. There's no Santa Claus. By the way, just in case I needed to ruin it for some kids, there's no Santa Claus. Then he responds to the first question. Is it his right to get an audience with God? And Elihu's response is, well, it depends on your heart. It depends on your heart. Look at verses 9 through 16. It's kind of a cool, cool argument that he makes. He says, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the Almighty, or of the mighty. But none says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. And now, because his anger does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression. Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Basically, Elihu says, there are a lot of people who suffer oppression in life, and not all of those people, just because they suffer oppression, go, well, where's the maker? Right? They don't just throw their hands up and, I'm ready to give up life. Yeah, Job, you've got a pretty sweet life. You've had a pretty awesome life. There are other people who they deal with oppression all the time, and they don't just give it up and go, well, I can't talk to the maker because maybe he doesn't exist. No, just because we're dealing with difficulty in our life doesn't mean we just start questioning the existence of God. No, God's bigger than that. God is sovereign over our good times, our quote-unquote good times, and he's sovereign over our, our trials as well. We go back to our maker no matter the circumstance. What Elihu says is what God wants are words of humility. 
to come to him with a pure heart, no matter what season of life that we are in. That's who God answers. That's who God takes account to. The second thing that I think that God gets right is the ma- or Elihu, excuse me, gets right is the majesty of God in creation. Look over at chapter thirty-seven. Chapter thirty-seven is kind of cool because it actually serves as a segue into the Lord's response to Job, and actually, it's sort of an introduction to what what God is is going to say as well. And it really is Elihu extolling the majesty of God, and it's a, and it's a great chapter. It's a great chapter of a man who really is caught up in the majesty of God and who he thinks his friend needs to understand in order to get through this trial. So take a look. Chapter 37, verse 1. At this also my heart trembles and it leaps out of place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice, the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heavens he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings with his voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Verse 6. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and they remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and the cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them. On the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. You know what he's appealing to? He's appealing to God's sovereignty over all things. The weather, the lightning, the rain, the snow. We might not like the rain. We might not like the downpour coming down. But what we don't understand is God's got, remember, like a trillion things going on. And he's using the snow and he's using the wind and the whirlwind to, to warn his animals. Hey, winter's coming. You need to find it. Like God's got a million trillion things going on all the time. And so what we are experiencing is not the only thing on God's agenda. It's not the only thing he's got to deal with. He loves us and he's concerned for us, but we are part of a much bigger tapestry of things that are going on. And we have to keep that in mind. And God will go into detail as well. How he ends his section is is actually pretty amazing. I think maybe he doesn't completely redeem himself from his arrogance and his anger, but I think he does extol God in a pretty great way. Take a look at the end. Hear this, verse 14, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous words of works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? You whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind. Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as cast metal mirror? Teach us what we shall say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when the bright... When it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them, 
Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. That's a pretty grand view of God. He is majestic. He is glorious, arrayed in golden splendor. So maybe our angry, arrogant punk isn't that bad after all. Maybe he does show a couple of sides of God that Job needs to hear. I think one of the things that we can take away, maybe big picture from Elihu especially, as young people is to is to certainly know our place, to respect those who are older. But as those who are receiving counsel, sometimes the vessel that God uses to bring us counsel, those vessels are not perfect. Sometimes he sends us angry vessels. Sometimes he sends us arrogant vessels, sinful vessels. That doesn't mean that everything they say is wrong. And we would be wise and be humble to listen. Is it godly counsel? Then we should submit to it, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We have seen a lot of dialogue and a lot of counsel. And at the end of the day, what we want to be impressed with is your majesty and your greatness. We don't understand all that goes on in our life or the lives around us. We know you are a grand God worthy of all praise, even praise when we don't get what we want. So we pray that we would have humble hearts to give good advice and good counsel and to receive it as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.